welcome to a new episode of Field Days, a podcast about news and hot topics related to the Michigan Department of Corrections. Here are your hosts, Chris Gouts and Greg Straub. Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Field Days, the MDOC's weekly podcast. I'm joined, as always, by our public information officer and spokesperson, Chris Gouts. How are you, Chris? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Yeah, we just uh, had our election, so now we have a new president. Yeah, well, we've all we've all survived the election. I think if, uh, regardless of the results and how it turned out, if you're a candidate won or lost, I think the one thing that is very clear that we can all agree on is that we are very glad that it's over. Yes, you can say so. that a hundred times over. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So now we can move on, and our guest that we'll have coming up in a few minutes will tell us uh, what all the results of the election mean. So that that'll be good. That's a very timely, uh, timely topic for us. That's good. So you know what's going on around FOA. Um, you know, on the news up in uh, Cadillac, on the local Cadillac news, they had a a spot on the offender success program going on up there, and it's with the Pinnacle Driving School, the Pinnacle Truck Driving School. You know, it was a really really good piece that said. Um, you know, since it began last year, the program has a 100% success rate. So 100% of our offenders that are in this program are working, are paying taxes, uh, on the road to success. You know, and they actually interviewed an offender who I thought said it very, very well. He said, you know, he's been out of a prison for a while, and all the jobs that he's had previously, first of all, it was hard, it was hard for him to get a job because he's an ex-offender, and not a lot of people want to hire you know, people with a felony on the record. And then he said, and the jobs he did have, you know, it was under the table. He didn't pay taxes. It was just kind of under the table kind of work. And now he feels like he's paying taxes. He's giving back. And, you know, that's, that really speaks to this program and kind of the director's, you know, the offender success and making people successful. That's public safety. So, you know, that was a really good piece. And I, and I kudos to the, the Pinnacle program up in Cadillac, and I know Muskegon uses it. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's a good program. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really great program, and I'm, I'm glad that the uh, the local news decided to uh, to highlight it. It's something that you know we we've got. I've been trying to get some other uh, news outlets interested in it because it is such a great great program and has has such great results uh, so early in its uh, in, in the program's history. And so I think it'd probably be good in future episodes of the podcast that we have somebody on from the truck driving school that could talk about it, uh, and so we can learn a little bit more about. It. I think that would be really helpful. Um, something else that was in the news uh, just recently was in the Jackson Citizen Patriot newspaper, uh, where they covered the One Day with God program, which um, we, our listeners may have heard about before. But it's this really amazing program where offenders get to spend the entire day uh, with their children inside uh, the prison walls. So normally, you know, families would would visit, you know, in the visiting room, uh, and it's uh, it's very limited as to as to what they can do. But here, they go inside the walls. They spend the entire day in the gymnasium hanging out with their fathers uh, and their mothers as well. We do one at the Valley uh, each year as well. But this year, I think they did uh, eight or nine camps around the state. Uh, and so they got up to the UP this year. They, they were in Muskegon. Uh, and they were all over, and this one was in Jackson. And they, the the story is really great. We I would encourage everybody to uh, grab a box of tissues and then <laughs> uh, go on to our Facebook page and find the link and check out that story. Uh, it's really it's a really good story. It's a really good program, um, and it really speaks to how important it is to maintain those family relationships when offenders are inside, because that really helps their success uh, when they get out. And th- that they've been able to maintain those relationships. And this program is just one way in which they can continue to do that. Well, that's a very good point. I, I, I read it this weekend on um, on social media, and it was. It was definitely get your tissues out. It's, it's a tearjerker. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that, 
Chris. That's that, that is interesting stuff going on across the MDOC. So you know, our guest today is our legislative liaison, Kyle Kaminsky, and you know, Kyle speaks at a lot of the MDOC events, the you know, the wardens' meetings, the supervisor conference in FOA. For some reason, people find this interesting. I, I'm not sure. They, they always want him back. So. Hey, might as well throw him on the podcast and see how he does. And uh, so I'm looking forward to today and getting Kyle on the podcast finally to talk about what's going on across the street at the, in the legislature and kind of just filling in staff on some of the bills that are up, uh, some of the you know the, some of the stuff happening over at the at the Capitol. So might yeah, as well get Kyle on. Yeah, these are the kind of conversations uh, you and I and Kyle and others have every day here around the office. And so for those who find that actually interesting, <laughs> now we've recorded it and everybody can listen to it in their cars on their way to work. Well. Let's uh, get to Kyle. Well, we're joined today by Kyle Kaminsky. Kyle joined the Michigan Department of Corrections in January of 2014 as a legislative liaison after working in various capacities within the Michigan legislature for over nine years. Starting in the state Senate, Kyle served in a number of roles, culminating in his time as a legislative director. In 2011, Kyle moved to the office of a newly elected state representative to serve as legislative director and oversee field, I'm sorry, office operations. While managing a successful re-election campaign, Kyle returned to the Senate to serve as a member of the Senate Majority Policy Office. In this capacity, Kyle advised the Senate Majority Leader and Republican Caucus on matters related to tax policy, economic development, regulatory reform, and general government budget. Since joining the MDOC, Kyle's role in the Director's Office has expanded to include overseeing special projects and representing the Department in a number of external capacities, including on the Criminal Justice Policy Commission, Kyle is a member of the department's executive policy team and has been married to his wife, Jennifer, who is also an MDOC employee for nearly 10 years and resides in Lansing. Welcome, Kyle, to Field Days. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It seems like I kept asking and my invitation kept getting lost in the mail, <laughs> uh, but I'm glad we could actually get together today. Well, great. Well, we're really glad to have you on. And now that the election's over, lame duck has begun, and this is going to be your world for the next uh, few weeks or few months. And so maybe you could just start by telling our listeners just what exactly lame duck is, you know, what it means, and uh, and when it starts and when it ends. Sure. So Michigan uses a two-year legislative calendar. So uh, the legislative session starts at the beginning of each odd number year and then uh, concludes at the end of the following even number of years. So we're coming to the end of the current session. And with the election having taken place, while well, we've elected a, a number of new state representatives, uh, the reality is they won't be seated until January. So we have a period of time between now, essentially the election day, and the end of the year, where the folks that were previously elected are still in office and still have the opportunity to impact state policy uh, by voting and moving and discussing a lot of different issues. So we're looking at a, a period here of probably three to four weeks before the, the year is done where they're going to try to work on a number of different issues. Uh, I guess the positive and negative of lame duck that most people think about is that it can be somewhat of a consequence-free time in the sense that they're as far away from an election as possible. So it's an ideal time for them to work on issues that maybe are politically difficult but necessary. It's also a time when some of them are looking to cement their legacies and get some other things done because they don't want to have to start over next year with a, a bunch of new members and having to educate new folks. Well, what are you hearing uh, are going to be some of those big issues that could come up during lame duck that would impact the MDOC? So uh, there's a lot of discussion in regard to criminal justice reforms. Uh, it's been something that's really been percolating for the last two years. Uh, we actually saw the start of the discussion during last year's lame duck, but we didn't see much get done then. Um, 
probably the, the biggest thing out there and the thing that's being discussed the most is uh, a bill that's going by presumptive parole. Um, but in, in addition, there's 20 some other bills uh, that make up a, re a Senate reform package on criminal justice as well as some other related issues that we think could be in play for lame duck. Again, we don't know if they'll pass. We don't know if they'll actually vote on them. Um, but as we stand here today, our expectation is that we'll be working on them before the end of the year. I, I know our, our listeners probably have heard a little bit about presumptive parole. Could you just kind of walk us through what that is and, and what it means? And Absolutely. So to really get an understanding of the legislation, we have to step back and, and kind of quickly cover what the law actually says today. And so we use parole guidelines to help stratify prisoners into three different groups. High probability of parole, average probability of parole, low probability of parole. Uh, and the goal there is to try to get them into their group to help the board and help other people within the MDOC when they're making parole decisions kind of know where they fall in context of other prisoners. And there's some things in our administrative rules that help dictate where the lines are between those groups. But ultimately what the, what the current state law says is that if you're high probability of parole, if the parole board chooses not to parole you when they give you a hearing, they have to give a substantial and compelling reason for not doing so. And they have to declare that in writing. Well, uh, that's what the department does currently, but the reality is that what constitutes a substantial and compelling reason is not established in state law, it's not established in any type of court case, it's really up to the board to do that. And so what the legislature has said is, as we've gotten better as a state and other states as well, understanding some of these objective uh, measures in relation to risk and ways that we can mitigate risk, they want to see us kind of put some parameters around what's substantial and compelling. And so to them, the things that are substantially compelling reasons for not paroling folks would be things like a poor institutional conduct score, so they haven't done well while they're in prison. Um, information that they've done substantial harm to a victim or continue to threaten a victim after they've been sentenced. So if it's already been taken into account in the sentencing by the judge, we can't resentence them. But if new information were to come to light, then that would be a substantially compelling reason not to parole them. If they had a pending felony, that would obviously be a substantially compelling reason not to parole them. Similarly, if they had post-sentencing conduct that indicates that they would still be a high risk to society. So they've been sentenced, they've come to the MDOC, they've spent their time in prison, and based on that time in prison, it's become clear that they would be a risk if they're released. The parole board still wouldn't have to parole them. Um, and then the final thing, and this is something that we, we're seeing quite a bit of, especially in Southeast Michigan, is if they had an active CODIS hit, uh, so a DNA hit. So as Detroit and other areas are, are working through their backlogs of some of their um, rape kits, what they're finding is that some of our offenders are, are matches for DNA, and so we would obviously not want to parole those folks until those cases could be prosecuted, so we'd be able to hold on to them. So really the goal with presumptive parole is just to put some parameters around what's substantially compelling. There's still, it's not a guarantee of parole. All it is is saying that if you are in the high probability of parole group, so you're the group that's most likely to parole, we're going to put some objective uh, standards in place in terms of reasons why you wouldn't parole. The board will still review every single case. The board will still vote on every single case. And as long as there's one of the substantially compelling reasons laid out in the law available to them, the board can refuse to parole any of those high probability folks. Right now, uh, with the board's current parole rates, it doesn't look like this would have a significant impact in terms of increasing the number of near-term paroles because parole rates are at an all-time high right now. What this does, though, is lock in those types of rates long term. Uh, 
if you were to look at parole rates over time in the state of Michigan, there's an ebb and flow. They get higher, something happens, they go lower, there's a change in administration, there's a change in public opinion, and they move around a lot. The reality is from the department's perspective, for the sake of planning, as well as for the sake that we know that if we are getting better at assessing risk and mitigating risk, we shouldn't see these significant increases and decreases in parole rates. We'd like to lock this in so this is a permanent policy for the state of Michigan in terms of our approach to parole. Mm -hmm. This is one of those is issues that uh, the things that aren't in the bill have sort of come to define it. And I wonder if there's some sort of common things that you hear when you talk to uh, lawmakers about things that aren't in the bill that, that you've had, you kind of routinely have to shoot down and explain, you know, this isn't part of this bill. Well, I, I think the difficult reality is this. We have parole cases that do not go as we would hope, them, hope for them to go. Um, we have parolees who commit crimes. We have parolees who do other things. Um, and so with a reform like this, what we find is those that don't support the reform or have concerns about the reform tend to pick on those cases, those outlier cases. Mm -hmm. But while they're outliers in terms of outcome, the outcomes themselves are very serious. <coughs> Uh, what we've discovered, though, is we've worked through this and talked to many of these folks, prosecutors, judges, legislators, others, um, is that oftentimes the examples they use to say, see, here's a parole case that, that didn't end as we would have liked. We shouldn't have uh, presumptive parole. What we find is those are cases that wouldn't have actually been impacted by the reform. Because you have to keep in mind the reform doesn't impact every prisoner. It only impacts those prisoners who through uh, the parole guidelines are in that high probability of parole group. So the more serious offenders, um, the offenders who have done poorly in prison are not going to be impacted by this. The other thing uh, that we're seeing and, and what has really been a major part of the fight is many folks use the original crime as a proxy for the future risk. So they say if someone committed a very assaultive offense 20 years ago, they must be high risk today. If someone committed a drug offense yesterday, they must be low risk because they're a nonviolent offender. And, and so we're trying to educate folks that using the original offense as a proxy for their risk is really not the right way to do it, that there are low-risk offenders who committed very serious crimes in the past. There are high-risk offenders who have committed many small crimes, nothing serious, no one's gotten hurt, and yet those are the ones that we know are more likely to commit future crimes. So it's been an education process, um, getting folks to understand that just because someone committed a serious crime doesn't mean that they can't be low risk in the community. No, that's, that's interesting and fascinating to hear you talk about presumptive parole because you know we are in the risk reduction business. You know that's what that's what our goals are um, is taking somebody who may be high risk when they come to prison and then reducing that risk so that they are you know a safer person to release, a safer person um, in the community if they're if they're out on parole. So uh, thanks for that detailed explanation. But you know on top of presumptive parole, I'm sure there's you know many other bills going through the legislature right now. So what should our employees keep an eye on um, about other bills in lame duck? Sure. So there's a number of bills that came out of the Senate. They were passed by the Senate. And they're currently awaiting action in the House uh, that would have a more direct impact on supervision practices and, and the MDOC's approach to supervision. Um, presumptive parole obviously deals with that parole decision, but doesn't really the bill itself doesn't really have any impact on how you would then supervise folks in the community. Within the Senate package, though, there's a few bills that are really aimed at that. So one is what they're calling the Regional Incentive, uh, I'm sorry, Regional Supervising Incentive Program, which would allow the department to pick some of its regions based on the prosperity regions uh, and allow us to access some additional funds and essentially see if we can create a reduction in both the probation revocations and the parole revocations in that region quarter over quarter throughout a year. 
And if we were able to do that, we would continue to receive additional funds for new programs, for additional equipment, uh, things like that. So this is essentially the legislature telling the department, we want to use some metrics, we want to put some metrics around this and incentivize some creativity on your part. Uh, there is $3 million in the current budget uh, for the current fiscal year that started October 1st that would support that program. Uh, we've been talking internally about how we might utilize that. The reality though is that the actual legislation to create the program hasn't been passed yet. So we haven't started that program as of yet, but it's something that, w that we could certainly start early next year if it were to be passed at lame duck. Another thing, uh, another bill within the Senate package is the parole sanction certainty program. And this kind of borrows some of the concepts that underpin Swift and Sure on the probation side in terms of the legislature would like us to codify uh, and, and put in place some clearer rules for parolees in terms of when they commit a certain act, what's their likely violation going to be. And I think for departmental staff, you, you have a very good idea of how you're going to react to that because you're seeing it every day. Uh, but the reality is the legislature doesn't necessarily understand that. The public doesn't necessarily understand that. And the thinking on the part of the legislature, and again, this kind of ties back to Swift and Sure on the probation side, is we should be transparent with offenders on the front end. If you commit Act A, you're going to face Sanction B. Uh, and that there's no need to really hide that. And that the certainty of that violation being enforced is more significant than necessarily the severity of that sanction. And so within this program, we've already started talking about uh, if this legislation were to be passed, it would not be so much that we would change our approach to sanctioning, it would be that we'd be more transparent in our approach to sanctioning, more objective in our approach to sanctioning, uh, in the hopes that, especially in the case of technical violators, um, that we're meeting those technical violations with, with an immediate response but hopefully maybe not uh, in the long-term response that requires additional incarceration. Well, you know, as, as the deputy director travels around, I know at least in FOA, I can, I can speak for FOA, there's always the question of the Sex Offender Registration Act. And, you know, is that ever going to change? Is it going to stay the same um, as far as, you know, language in that, in that, in that uh, statute? So is there any movement on that, Bill? So there is behind the scenes movement, but not public movement. So just to kind of catch everybody up, there's been some recent court cases that have pretty much taken uh, the act and make it, made it pretty close to unenforceable. Um, you know, over time, the legislature continually added new requirements for sex offenders. And what the court essentially said is, uh, the legislature was incorrect in doing that. That those essentially serve as kind of ex post facto punishments. And so at this point, if, if you go by what the court has stated, uh, we really would have to have multiple sex offender registries that would be based on when the sex offender committed their crime. From an operational perspective, that, that's just not doable. Right. So uh, there are a couple more pending cases in the courts which, which will have to be heard, but the goal here and the agreement that's in place behind the scenes between uh, the legislature, state police who's technically responsible for the registry, MDOC, the ACLU, um, the sheriffs, the prosecutors, is that we won't take any further action to try to fix this in lame duck um, because it's just too complex an issue, but that as we enter next year, uh, there, will, there will be work groups seeking to try to reform the sex offender registry and address these issues. It's too early to know what the final product will look like, but there is a strong commitment from all the stakeholders to, to work on essentially recreating the registry, trying to rationalize the registry versus trying to just continue to, to place Band-Aids on it. What should staff look for moving forward here in 2017 um, 
when everybody new comes in and, and they start the process over? So we're going to see about a third of the state house turnover here. So in, in January, it'll be an education game for us. Um, we're going to have a lot of folks who are going to come in. Uh, based on uh, what I can see, I don't think we're going to have a single new state representative with any experience in corrections, which is not odd because we don't currently really have any state representatives with experience in corrections. Right. Um, I think to the extent that some of these issues we've talked about don't get addressed in lame duck, they will resurface next year. They'll be reintroduced, we'll start from scratch. Uh, in addition though, as we get into next year and, and we flip the calendar, we'll be back into budget season, which is about half of our, uh, half of our year from a legislative perspective, roughly February through June. And so we'll see additional legislation that ties to the budget, that ties to priorities that the department has in terms of offender success as well as priorities for individual legislators. Well, Kyle, you, you gave a, you know, you shared a lot of information about the process, lame duck, what staff can look for. Yeah, we appreciate coming on field days today. It's, it's, uh, it, was, it was fun to actually get you on. I, I know we've been talking about getting you on for a long time, and I guess Chris finally made this happen. So, you know, thanks, Chris, and uh, thanks, Kyle, for, for coming on today. We appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, and I know uh, it's hard to cover everything in a, in a format like this, but uh, if there are agents, supervisors, anybody else listening to this, if you ever have questions about what's going on in the legislature, all you have to do is, is shoot me an email or call me. Uh, there are plenty of people within the department who do that. Um, I'm always happy to answer those questions. Uh, the reality is the legislative process can be a slow one and at times a frustrating one. We don't necessarily get to pick the outcome that we want, um, but if you have thoughts or, or just want an update, uh, folks should feel free to reach out. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for coming on. Like, and like you said, uh, come February, we'll be back in the full swing of things with budget, and, and you're going to be busy probably in the month of January and February taking all those new lawmakers uh, through all of our, all of our facilities. and, and, and Field offices. Field offices. Tour season will we'll start hot and heavy. It's, uh, there's much more interest in touring the facilities than there are touring the field <laughs> offices, I'm sorry to say. Um, <laughs> That is true, but I've gotten a few folks out to field offices, uh, as well as parole board hearings. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things, as we get new legislators, we would like to introduce them to as much of the department as we can. So um, certainly supervisors should be prepared to get that email or that phone call, letting them know that they have a new legislator who might want to, might want to see how they actually get things done. Well, once you're through with your tours, I'm sure we'll have you back on probably sometime in February to talk about the budget as it rolls out and, and some of the big things that are, that are included in there for us. So glad, glad to have you on, and we'll have you back on soon. Thank you. All right, Chris. Well, you know, once a month we're going to have Holly Kramer, who works in your office, on field days to kind of give us Holly's highlights of what's going to be covered in Corrections Connection. So this Friday, November 18th, in the Corrections Connection, there's going to be a cover story that talks about the exit program over on the west side of the state in Muskegon. And, you know, let's go to Holly now where she can explain what this program is and uh, what they're doing. The cover story in the next newsletter is about the exit program in Muskegon County that's empowering ex-offenders in transition. It's a really great community collaboration that's focused on helping offenders get the skills they need to be successful so they don't re-offend. Um, it involves the MDOC, Muskegon County Sheriff and Courts, and a variety of service-based agencies. Um, the offenders that are involved can in obtain industry-recognized certifications from Muskegon Community College. They take classes in um, job skills such as resume writing and interviewing techniques, um, learn stress reduction and take other cognitive-based programming. 
to uh, help them get back on their feet. So this is the second year of the program. It's been pretty successful so far. They've had 169 offenders go through and at least 65% of them have gained employment after completing the program. So we'll be excited to see more of what they do going forward. All right, as always, thank you for listening. We'd love it if you would help us spread the word about the podcast. You can do that by subscribing to the show on iTunes and leave us a review. You can always follow the department on Facebook at MI Corrections and on Twitter at Michigan DOC, as well as the FOA account at MDOC FOA and the CFA account at MDOC CFA. And you can send any questions you have to the show using the hashtag AskFieldDays. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to Field Days Podcast.